Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us this week for our third creature feature in our monster bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1999's The Sixth Sense, as well as 1994's Wolf. These are, respectively, our ghost and werewolf movies. And before we go any further, we do have to add a content warning here. Something we haven't had to do in a while, but here we are. So, for this episode, we're going to be discussing The Sixth Sense and touching on mental health, self-harm, a little bit of suicide as well, and as for wolf, minor content warning for sexual assault. Without further ado, why don't we go ahead and get into our two films this week? Sure. So, Sixth Sense. Malcolm Crow and his wife Anna are celebrating an award Malcolm has received for his work as a child psychologist. However, as they are retiring to the bedroom, they notice someone is broken in. In the bathroom, one of Malcolm's former patients, Vincent Gray, now an adult, is angry for Malcolm's failure to help him. Before Malcolm can calm him down, Vincent shoots him and turns the gun on himself. The next fall, Malcolm begins work with a new patient. Cole Sear, who reminds Malcolm of Vincent. Cole has problems with social interaction and routinely has cuts and bruises on his body. After the two build a rapport, Cole reveals his secret to Malcolm. He sees dead people. Malcolm at first believes these just to be hallucinations and doesn't believe he can help Cole. But after reviewing his session tapes of Vincent, he hears audio proof of a haunting. Malcolm suggests that the ghosts just need someone to listen to them and encourages Cole to use his gift to help them and put them to rest. Initially, Cole is hesitant, but after a ghost of a girl comes to him, he decides to try and help. Cole and Malcolm travel to the family's wake, and Cole finds a videotape and presents it to her father. The tape reveals that the girl was poisoned by her mother. Cole is then able to cope with his abilities and begins to fit in at school, and Malcolm concludes their sessions. Cole opens up to his mother about his gifts and proves them by relaying messages from his grandmother. Malcolm now returns to his estranged wife, and is revealed that he died from Vincent's attack. He's been a ghost while helping Cole see her. Malcolm says his goodbyes to Anna, and the film concludes. When we were watching this, we talked about how we wish that at least one of us didn't know going in what the twist was, because it's a really good twist that is executed really well. And we both knew it was from pop culture osmosis, but... I mean, I've also seen the film before. I hadn't, actually. But knowing that, I can see how they've used very clever editing and writing to set up the fact that Bruce Willis is a ghost, but not actually come out and say it. And it's really well done. And I wish that I could have had the unsolted reveal of... (gasps) For that. And because of how well it's done, this is definitely a film that requires at least two viewings to fully understand because after you know the twist it's a completely different experience viewing this film and how they make it so that it's believable that Malcolm doesn't know that he's a ghost. There's a lot of little subtle things that are there to mollify the well what about kind of people like there's a bit where he talks about losing time which kind of makes you think he's like being a ghost he's not super tethered to temporality because you would probably notice your, if your wife hadn't talked to you for an entire year. I'm so sorry, Anna. I just can't seem to keep track of time. You get the sense that he's not living every moment to moment. He's always living only in the edits, as it were. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. Like, unless Malcolm is on screen, Malcolm doesn't really exist. He only really exists as the film is showing him to us. A great example of this is um, a number of times throughout the film, Malcolm is trying to enter the basement of his and Anna's home where he keeps like his records and does a lot of his psychiatry work. But every time he grabs this doorknob, shakes it, and the the door is locked, he can't open the door. And you see him reaching into uh, his pocket for what you expect is a key, 
but we never see him pull out the key and unlock the door. It just immediately cuts to him then being in the basement working with the stuff. And you can speculate about the mechanics of how it all works, like why he remembers all the certain things, why he's more, I guess, tangible and experiencing of things than, say, the ghost of the kid who found his dad's gun or the angry wife in Cole's house or whatever. But I think this film is a lot better if you don't try to make it all make perfect sense. The, the more you try to dissect it, the more you'll ruin the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. The emotional torque that Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment go through is really impressive. They're both at their A-game here. I always forget just how well Bruce Willis does acting opposite children, and here is no exception. But also, Haley Joel Osment, oh my god, the amount of realness in this character and how vivid Cole feels is a lot. This kind of set off his career from here he jump into things like pay it forward ai secondhand lions and unfortunately kind of after secondhand lions as he moved into his teenage years wasn't quite getting as much work because it was no longer that cute kid but luckily he has metamorphosed into a cute bear in the modern day so let's get our sixth sense to 12th sense <laughs> no not that <laughs> But that does bring up a good conversation that we had after the films. Like, I would love to see what happens to Cole after the film ends. Like, what becomes of him and his gift as an adult? I think it'd be incredibly interesting. Unfortunately, all of the rights to that are tied up with M. Night Shyamalan. And the quality of his work has diminished as his career has gone on. And while I would love to see a sequel to this i'm not sure i would want m night Shyamalan to be involved in said sequel yeah i mean we have a decent number of protagonist helps ghosts with their troubles type tv shows but those are usually kind of fun and i don't know of any that are on right now that are doing super well so why not this is a good enough time for it there's also the fact that i don't think any of them take their subject matter as seriously as this film does it's very contemplative with everything that's going on with both Cole as well as the ghosts that he's encountering. While I knew about the whole Cole sees dead people thing from Pop Culture Osmosis, I didn't know that the third act or so of the film is Cole learning how to help the dead. And the transition from scared kid to voice for the voiceless is is a really satisfying one. Like, we get it kind of exemplified in, in basically this short film within a film where Cole helps a girl who was murdered by her mom. Mom? Mom. Mom? Yeah, mom. Uh, Maternal figure. Maternal figure. It's not quite clear whether that's her, like, biological mom or, like, her stepmom. Mm -hmm. Her noticeably older sister, neighbor with a beard, who knows? Definitely not her older sister. (laughs) You can watch just from when Cole meets that ghost to when that gets resolved as its own standalone thing. And Mm -hmm. I would watch a lot more of those. Mm -hmm. It's effectively done. It's a bit creepy. It doesn't make the ghost stop being scary in the way that ghosts are often scary in, like, in horror films. But it still gives a lot of agency and humanity to them, which I think is really interesting and has a very, like, narrow nuance to the threads. Yeah. I also really like that arc because it is effectively Malcolm teaching Cole how to do his job. But instead of working with children, he works with the dead. Yeah, it's functionally the whole, like, uh, passing on the torch thing. But you don't realize that until... Yeah. Yeah. And in doing so, Malcolm is inadvertently giving Cole the tools to help Malcolm move on himself. And it's just the parallels and the way like they both help each other grow and better themselves is just so good and it's so compelling and it's incredibly well written. 
I wasn't always a fan of Malcolm's practice of psychology with Cole, but I'm not sure if that's just a me thing. Like, there's a bit where Cole talks about how... And I'm a freak. Hey, you are not a freak, okay? Don't you believe anybody that tries to convince you of that? That's bullshit. You don't have to go through your life believing that. That wouldn't work for me. I think embracing your differences is better than saying, no, you're not different, you're normal. But I don't know, maybe that's what Cole needed at the time, so I guess it's fine. And I, you know, the film tells us that it works out, so. I think we also have to do a little bit of grain of salt because this film is 20 years old and yeah, psychology has definitely moved quite a bit further than it was then. Yeah, and also everyone has different needs, so there's no one right way to do psychology. This is more just me saying that Bruce Willis is not my ideal psychologist. Fair. <laughs> it's also really weird having Bruce Willis have hair here. Yeah, yeah. Not the natural order of things. I don't have a good transition for this, but Tony Collette is in this movie. Tony Collette plays Cole's mom, and I love Tony Collette. She's a very fun, very versatile, very intense actress who is often doing really good work and things but not getting her dues. Like, She's great in Connie and Carlo, she's great in Velvet Goldmine, she's great in Hereditary, and got honestly incredibly snubbed at the Oscars. She's a really fun actress, and I'm glad to see her doing stuff, and she's great here. She's a mom who's doing her best, but her son is dealing with something big and scary and incomprehensible, and can't really talk to her about it, and she doesn't know how to help him. Which means that you have these confrontations between her and her son, where you can tell that both are doing their best, but they're still failing because they just don't have the tools to talk to each other yet. And it's really heartbreaking, but really, like, emotionally affecting. Yeah, uh, Lynn Sear is definitely, like, one of the best moms that we've encountered in our various brackets. And just the fact that she is doing whatever she can, she's trying to be a good mom, but failing through really no fault of her own is just incredibly compelling and Tony Collette is capturing that beautifully. I also really want to give her props for towards the end of the film when Cole finally mm. re reveals his secret and he's relaying all this knowledge and these secrets that he shouldn't have from his grandmother to Lynn. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, please she stop. wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. The facial acting going on there is incredible. It's so believable. It's this mix of we're having this huge emotional breakthrough moment, but this is also terrifying. And I I can't believe my son has had to go through with the, this by himself without me being able to help him. And she doesn't know about uh, Bruce Willis' psychologist. She's assuming that he's been all alone through all of this, which that's a scary thought. Mm -hmm. And also the stuff that Cole's relating is making her rethink her relationship with her mother and stuff that she's been leaving unresolved for uh, 30 years or whatever, which that's also a lot. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's a really beautiful face journey, but also it means that she gets to be happy at the end of it. And she's a woman who has not gotten to for the whole film. And I'm like, yay, she, they get to actually talk now. Hurrah! Mm -hmm. There's also a really good scene uh, towards the start of the film where Cole asks how her day went and she spends this elaborate fantasy about winning the lottery and then Cole picks up on what she's doing and spins this elaborate fantasy about winning at kickball. And it's a really sweet scene that tells you a lot about their relationship and also this kind of shared sadness of want that they have. While they can't always communicate about what they're actually doing, they're able to communicate about their interior feeling, which I think helps me understand why I want them to be happy as a family dynamic. And see, for me, I 
interpreted that scene a little bit differently. I felt that Cole's response was just so incredibly sad because of how simple that want is. It's not a bad want, but it's just that simple acceptance from his peers and he's not able to have that is just so incredibly sad. And it does a great job of establishing just how isolated Cole is. Yeah, that also does a lot to explain why he kind of puts up with the bullying that he has to go through because at least they're paying attention to him. At least they're interacting with him at all and he's so isolated that even bullying is better than nothing i walked this way to school with tommy tomasino he's your best buddy he hates me what happened with m night Shyamalan? because like he can clearly write a scene he can write really good scenes with really subtle character interaction that have a lot of layers and levels and flow together really well but stand alone just as well and it's weird that like that went away at some point this is me speculating, but I think part of it was that he got really attached to this idea of, like, these twist endings are going to be my thing, and he has kind of shoehorned them into all of his work since then. You know, we have The Sixth Sense and then Unbreakable, which is also very good. It's it's very different. Also stars Bruce Willis. You know, that was also very critically well-received. And then his next three films, we have Signs, The Village, and Lady in the Water. Signs at the time was pretty well received, but I don't think it has held up nearly as well as his previous work. The Village has its own problems as well. Uh, and then Lady in the Water was kind of where things like really started to fall apart. And I will go to bat for The Village. I think you know it has troubles, but I think overall it's a very beautiful and effective film. Yeah, I don't think any of those three films are terrible, but they all show the cracks that are happening within... M. Night Shyamalan's creative process. Mm -hmm. After that, we had The Happening and his attempt at the live-action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. Which was so poorly received that he was banished to the Phantom Zone for like five years and didn't make anything. But he still hasn't been able to quite get back to that space. Although, while The Visit and Split are critiqued very heavily for their very poor portrayal of mental health issues, um, and, and rightly so, they still have some very effective scenes within them. So I think that Shyamalan can still do that. He just needs to like figure out how to do it consistently. And it's so weird that he has so much problems with mental health because here like he does a pretty good job of dealing with it yeah it's weird although i guess here some of the mental health stuff it's a bit ephemeral and also there's an excuse for it as opposed to just being mental health issues yeah that several characters assume that cole is self-harming when actually he's dealing with a ghost with a knife it's a little unclear some of the spirits are angry enough that they're able to harm him, like after he gets trapped in the dumbwaiter at the birthday party, that ghost was able to like scratch him and that's where the uh, marks came from on his back. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they, they never quite get into how all of that's happening. And I guess I can see some of the seeds of Shyamalan's issues with portrayals of mental illness with vincent gray at the beginning of the film mm. but we spend not that much time with him so it's uh not super clear exactly what's going on there exactly but also uh, bruce willis i should use his name malcolm is a psychologist who's generally had a good track record who's helped kids who's it's shown that psychology works and is uh, and is valid and it's not like you know people who have mental health issues are you know irredeemable or whatever so yeah. it's just there are a few times when things go wrong which fair enough that doesn't have to happen one last thing I do want to cover, it's just really great filmmaking and it's really interesting. 
I want to highlight the way that the camera moves during the mind reading game during Cole and Malcolm's uh, second session. Mm, yeah. It's a mind reading game. Here's how it works. I read your mind. If what I say is right, you take one step towards the chair. If what I say is wrong, you take one step back towards the doorway. If you reach the chair, you sit down. If you reach the door, you can go. Yeah, as the game starts, we have a pretty wide view of the room uh, that Malcolm is sitting in with the chair and everything. As he gets questions right, we cut to Cole's feet and him taking one step forward. And we also watch the camera zoom in on Cole. And that happens, you know, the first three questions are all correct. And we see, you know, the steps moving forward, we see the camera zoom in. And then as he gets questions wrong, we see the reverse where the camera zooms out as we see the steps are taken back. And it does such a good job of getting the audience into the headspace that Cole is in and having this visual representation for the distance that Cole is experiencing. As Malcolm is getting these questions right, Cole feels more trusting of him and is like, maybe he can help me. And then, unfortunately, his hopes are dashed and he retreats away again. It's so good and it... Uh... Yeah. It does a lot to tell you who Cole is and who Malcolm are in a very unusual way. The film is luxurious in terms of filmmaking, but not in like a visually decadent way, not like a Baz Luhrmann kind of way, but in a way where everyone is really enjoying making this moment come to life. Like they are taking pride in very small, subtle things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of taking pride in things, let's talk about Wolf. Okay. So this is our werewolf movie for this bracket where we had, you know, one movie per universal monster. The amount of time someone was like, oh, so you're doing an American werewolf in London, right? Was a lot? No, we are not. Adjusted for inflation, this is the highest grossing werewolf movie uh, that we could find that met all, all qualifications. No one's heard of it. No one knows what this is. Yeah. We were, in fact, disappointed that we were not talking about an American werewolf in London. Or even, like, ginger snaps. <laughs> I mean... I guess. I mean, Ginger Snaps <laughs> is maybe not a great film, but it's at least an interesting film. That's fair. It, it is saying interesting things, and it is a werewolf movie about a woman. Those <laughs> are incredibly rare. Yes. Heck, I'd even take Howl, which is basically, what if your train broke down and there were werewolves on it? <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and get into the summary of this film that almost no one remembers? Uh, yeah. So, Will Randall, Jack Nicholson, is an editor-in-chief at a large publishing house who was bit by a wolf on his way home, but that's the least of his worries. Raymond Alden, a tycoon who recently took over the publishing house, has offered him a choice. Leave or take a dead-end demotion. Initially sort of resigned to it, he grows angry when he finds his protege, Stuart, uh, doing st skullduggery to replace him. Then, the next day, his increasing senses tell him that Stuart is having an affair with his wife, and he bites him during their confrontation in a scene you could easily miss if you were looking down at your notes, and then it makes the rest of the movie very confusing. So, yeah. To annoy her dad, Laura Alden hooks up with Will, but is annoyed when he vanishes the next morning. He, for his part, is annoyed at waking up in the woods covered in blood and deer parts. He tracks down an expert on werewolves and gets a magic amulet to repress his dark gift. It doesn't work super well, and he attacks some zoo animals, some cops, and some muggers. The next day, 
the political jockeying gets him his old job back and he lords it over Stuart. Lauren Will's romantic night in his hotel is interrupted by police officers. Will's wife is dead. Laura, worried that maybe Will was more right than she gave him credit for about the whole being a werewolf thing, goes to inform on him to the police, but runs into Stuart, who's doing the same thing. She realizes that he also has this dark gift and makes arrangements for her and Will to flee the country. Stuart shows up, attacks her, and Will rips off the amulet to save her. Uh, she winds up saving her own damn self. Will runs off, and Laura stares after her, showing signs of the gift herself. Uh, we're calling it the, the, dark, the Dark Gift because this movie feels very um, the right kind of thing. This has an interview with the vampire vibe. I mean, they did come out the same year, which is so weird. Yeah. Interview with the Vampire feels sleek and modern compared to this. Yeah. Part of that is the casting. A lot of the actors that were in Interview with the Vampire are still working, still like, you know, part of big Hollywood projects. Whereas, can't really say the same thing for most of the cast in Wolf. With the exception of uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And I guess Christopher Plummer does have uh, the role of replacing lesser actors. <laughs> they also ha very much have the same palette. But yeah, it's so weird. Those two films came out at the same time, dealing with, you know, dark supernatural subject matter. And Interview with the Vampire is not super well known, but if you talk to a random person, they've probably at least heard of it. When we were talking about this amongst our social circle, no one had heard of this movie at all. Yeah. And it's got name cast, like Will Randall is played by... Jack Nicholson, Laura is played by, by Michelle Pfeiffer, Laura's dad is Christopher Plummer. Yeah, we also have James Spader here as Stuart. Oh yeah, and my favorite, Prunella Scales, here as one of the uh, writers that Will Randall works with. You don't know who she is, but she's the, the wife from Faulty Towers. Uh, I love her. She's great. It's a relatively new profession, psychiatry, isn't it? Well, Freud started about 1880. Yes, but it's only now we're seeing them on the television. I really have to chalk up this film doing so well to the cast, because it's 1994 and you have Michelle Pfeiffer and Jack Nicholson and James Spader, who are, at the time, pretty much in the height of their careers, doing this film that probably drove a lot of the audience to the theater. But this film is not well remembered, and I totally understand why. The biggest problem this film has is... All of the politicking and backstabbing going on at the publishing house is actually really compelling the way the story's told and filmed. But as soon as we're getting into, oh yeah, Will murdered his wife while he was a werewolf and now the cops are getting involved, I aggressively do not care about anything going on in the film after that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. The politicking is interesting and the modern remake of The Wolfman is decently, in it's not very interesting, but it's fine. Yeah. But the two don't intermesh very well together because the film doesn't seem to realize that Will's success in the publishing house uh, requires him to also give in to the being a werewolf thing or doesn't he realize that that's a bad thing. Like there's not like this struggle between the two inter internally for him. Yeah. The struggle comes out after he murders his wife. Right. Like, which kind of comes out of the blue. So when I was looking up stuff for the summer because I didn't remember all of this movie there's some implication that that might have been Stuart I like because like his wife did say oh no you're the one for me not Stuart at some point and maybe Stuart heard her or smelled her or whatever either way it's never resolved if your main antagonist kills your protagonist's ex-wife you, you don't drop that ball the movie's clearly very uninterested in Will's I guess less interesting wife after the the scene where we find out about the affair we don't see her again until she comes to try and apologize to him at the hotel where he's staying with Laura Laura at mm -hmm. like it's a good like half of the movie where she's just not there after she's introduced this character mm -hmm. she feels very superfluous i think that if they'd remove the whole affair thing entirely 
and stuck all of Stewart's stuff into the political backstabbing and had had Will murder Raymond Allen instead. That could have been more interesting, would have tied things more together, it would have complicated the stuff with Laura. And we don't have a woman getting fridged. Yeah. Don't you have enough brains to stay away from animals when you know they're frightened of you? I didn't know it was me that they were frightened of. Oh, are you an idiot? You nearly stampeded the horses last Monday. Can't you see that animals are disturbed by your presence? Hey. I was not at all invested in the Laura will love thing because it bugs me that Michelle Pfeiffer is almost 20 years younger than Jack Nicholson. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, people can't have relationships with people who have different ages. That was, I'm not saying it would never work out, but it definitely felt like that thing in Hollywood where we just talked about this. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. How older men and younger women get paired together all the time and it kind of has this gross vibe. Yeah, I believe Michelle Pfeiffer at the time of the film's release was like 30 and yep. Jack Nicholson was 55. Yeah. So they are both adults. They are old, you know, to make decisions. But even the actress playing Will's wife is 11 years younger than Jack Nicholson. <sighs> he has a type. <laughs> but also Laura, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, just doesn't make sense to me. She's written like a rebellious, rebellious teenager, maybe rebellious 20 something, but she's 36. Like she's Closer to midlife crisis age than she is to, like, rebellious youth age. I think part of that just comes from, like, her coming from a very waspy family. And, like, as portrayed in, like, Hollywood tropes, they're always backbiting. And you always have kids who are trying to upset their parents or embarrass them. And that's what motivates them to do a lot of the dumb things that they do. I will readily admit that's a really bad excuse. And it does make Laura much less compelling because of it. We are told that her family is bad and she doesn't like them but we never really see that like i mean our scene where we meet the kind of the characters who are meant to kind of represent this mansion and that society are you know not great don't like them but we don't see laura interacting with them so we don't get a sense of her opinion of them in particular it's not like she's offended by their politics or annoyed by their vapid conversation or whatever she seems just like eh, it sucks to have this giant mansion and a house of my own and a pony there's also not a whole lot of distinction between all those people and people like will and his secretary at the publishing house like yeah these are the people you're supposed to be rooting for and they're like this and these are the people that you're supposed to be rooting against and they're like this the good guy bad guy teams are not very discreet here and you can totally have films where that's the case there are only murderers in this room i don't think it works to this film's benefit yeah and we almost get a bit of that our first scene with will is him being kind of a, a good boss whose workers like him which is pretty good if you get the axe tonight i go with you and so do i now listen you need your paychecks I forbid you to take any action if I'm fired. But that kind of goes away pretty fast. The film doesn't give us that, uh, oh god, I've become everything I've hated kind of thing that you get with this sort of story. Yeah, and I would have loved that. And like exploring that as a side effect of giving in to the wolf and getting the success that he's looking for at his job would have been much more compelling than anything that this film's second half gave us. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've seen that story, but I can't put my finger on where. Every third episode of Buffy, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> <sighs> wow, this, this does really feel like a bad, way too long episode of Buffy. Yeah, I get that vibe. The effects are about on par. Oh, there are some, some slow-mos that, uh, 
Oh yeah, like uh, slow mo of Laura falling off the horse. Slow mo's of uh, Jack Nicholson running through the woods. They do that thing where uh, he runs on all fours, you know, like wolves do. But human bodies are not meant to work that way, and it's just not dignified to look at a person doing that with a normal human body. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also some jumps where they like slow the camera down, and I'm expecting the six million dollar man <laughs> music to show up. <laughs> I think the worst effect, though, and the film seems really, really proud of it, is the animatronic wolves that they use. <laughs> At the beginning and end of the film, we we see some like jet black animatronic wolves there for to, like to get some shot, and we get the close up on their eyes. And I know that someone worked really, really hard on those, but I cannot help but think they just raided spare parts from a Chuck E. Cheese to make them. (laughs) They are so bad and so fake looking. It reminded me of the live action Country Bears uh, film. Ironically enough, in which Haley Joel Osment starred as the voice of Barry. Hmm. The vibe I got was uh, Gmork from NeverEnding Story. Don't you know anything about Fantasia? Oh, yeah. But they have the sense to keep Gmork, you know... In the dark, unmoving, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas here, like, yeah, we're going to zoom in on it so you can see every fine detail. <laughs> you can see the individual motors were to, like, bend <laughs> the eyebrows. That said, the wolf man effects when they get fuzzy on the face, not bad. Yeah, those are fine. They are, like, very reminiscent of the original wolf man. They are minimalistic, but effective. They do a good job of having them be subtle. As the moon is rising and characters are doing things in the scene, they will just get sideburns a little bit, or their eyes will slowly be turning more yellow. Mm-hmm. Which James Spader with uh, teeth and uh, sideburns and uh, glowing yellow eyes, um, it's better not awaken anything. I mean, <laughs> do you want to get into that one plot cul-de-sac of a doctor guy? Oh, yeah, the uh, analog for the Romani woman in this one. Yeah, uh, if you haven't seen the original Wolfman, there's a, a bit where a Romani woman is like, oh, you have the beast. Heaven help you. Here's how you cure it. Here's what do. If you see a pentacle in someone's hand, it means you're going to eat them. If you've ever seen the Sandlot, it's that scene. This guy is an Indian man who has doctorates in werewolf. He, he wrote the book on being possessed by animals or whatever will was actually using his position as working for a book publisher like hey what are the best books that we have on this subject you mean like a manual on owning animals no no not animal possession animal possession and that's how he connects with this guy which actually i think is really brilliant use of his job yeah that was a fun pre-internet way of googling something mm-hmm. making your making your underling look for it mm-hmm. but this guy explains some of the kind of interesting i like the idea that you're only a, a monster if you are a bad person that like a good person won't mm-hmm. you know be dangerous they don't really do anything with that there's a you know a lot of laura telling willie's a nice guy uh, and boy howdy he is a nice guy but that's about it. There's also this thing where the doctor agrees to help him, but he, in return, he wants to be bitten because he has some sort of terminal illness and is dying. And that also never gets resolved. So as soon as Will has the amulet that's supposed to suppress his wolfiness, we never see that character again. Yeah, he literally just steals magic from an Asian person and abandons him to die of cancer. Sometimes one doesn't even need to be bitten. Only the passion of the wolf is enough. 
some of the stuff this guy is saying is interesting and if this were something I was more invested in I would want to have a whole piece about how it does and does not interact with therianthropic myths and legends of India versus Europe. I, it's not worth it. I don't care enough. The, the stuff they got wrong, they definitely got wrong. The stuff they got right, I'm pretty sure it was an accident. So, <laughs> Pretty sure they lucked into it. Yeah. That guy's actually interesting, though, and I'm always intrigued by the whole I want to become a werewolf to cure my whatever. That's always a fun plot line. Mm-hmm. A thing we get from this scene is the idea that you're only a monster if you're a bad person. And a thing that I get from this movie is that it is man in kind of a midlife crisis point who is now doing all this shitting underhanded stuff and, you know, being mean to people to get ahead in life. But he has the excuse that he's a werewolf and therefore he's not really to blame for any of the bad stuff he's doing. And it feels like the movie's basically giving a clever supernatural justification to this guy's problematic behaviors. And I'm not here for it. Oh no, like if you are wanting this movie to interact or comment on toxic masculinity in a interesting progressive way, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's all apologia for toxic male bullshit. That's just often the case with werewolf films when you have, you know, like, oh man is becoming beast sort of thing. That's It's a very easy thing to descend into. The cultural conversation about the way men act was just not there in 94. That's also one of the reasons why it's so interesting to see movies about women who are werewolves. The way the normal werewolf story is told is very at odds with our normal portrayals of women in media, and there's this tension there that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because of Stewart's uh, relationship as Will's protege and not quite surrogate son, there's a certain like surrogate son vibe, or maybe more. Stewart talks about how much he loves Will a lot. There's a kind of like weird Oedipal vibe of like the son sleeping with the mother and trying to overpower the father. And it's, I don't think the film meant to do that, but it achieved that anyway. (laughs) It definitely did. Throughout most of the first act, I never have any idea of how sincere Stuart is. Which I thought was actually kind of interesting. I I like that we have this ambiguous character. Yeah, and then they kind of throw that all out where... What do you want me to do? I'll do it. Resign today. Promise never to see Charlotte again. I want you to resign today. Well, I can't do that. He's like, oh no, Will. Will's too much of a nice guy. He's he's never going to ask me to do that. I feel like we're complaining a lot about this movie. I don't want this to be a complaining podcast, but it's not fair up against the sixth sense. It really is not. I honestly enjoy a good chunk of the first half of the film. Like the whole how the werewolf got his groove back is it's fun. But the film kind of abandons all that to chase played out werewolf tropes. The film definitely starts off in that place of, like, we are, like, reimagining the Wolfman, you know, in a modern setting. Which, you know, that's fine, but, I don't know, I don't think it accomplishes that, and I don't think it accomplishes the interesting stuff that it's doing with the publishing house and all that. And it, it's kind of just two half-finished films stuck together. Yeah. One last complaint I'm gonna level at this film. The scene in which Stuart dies... Uh, he gets shot by Laura from the like security guard's gun that he had murdered earlier. He gets shot a couple times, and then there's this really weird grunts that come out of him as he's getting hit. All I have in my notes is just gunshots. Bleh, bleh. <laughs> That's all it made me think. It's also weird that like the solution to the, to the werewolf problem is just shoot him with a gun. 
It's not even necessarily silver bullets. It's just, you know, a gun. I wouldn't be surprised if, considering how rich that family is, they just stocked their security guards with silver bullets. <laughs> They're very prepared. Just, just as a point of prestige. The ending of this film is just not good. It's not really compelling, and it doesn't really go anywhere. I am here for Michelle Pfeiffer as a werewolf. That, that's yes, fun. But, but like that's that's it. That's the only interesting thing. Yeah. <sighs> All right. I think it's time we dive into monster movie magic. Yeah, we've kind of already talked about the werewolf effects, which are sometimes good, sometimes bad. <laughs> the werewolf effects are good. The wolf effects are very bad. I will say also the werewolf effects are, they're fine. They're not great. Like there's not... They don't inspire awe. Right. Werewolf transformations have been one of those like iconic things you see evolve over time. Like seeing how that has changed from the original Lon Chaney Wolfman all the way up to something like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban or Van Helsing, I guess, is another one that has some impressive werewolf transformations. I mean, say what you want about that film, but it's very pretty. It's very pretty. Uh, has some very good plot. The iconic body horror of your bones cracking Twist and back twisting as you back. become this wolf thing is a big thing in Hollywood and it's weird the film kind of just doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. We just get guys with, with furry faces. And then on the other side, we also have very subtle effects in The Sixth Sense. Like, we don't have, we don't have like Ghostbusters-esque ghosts for The Sixth Sense. Like, everyone is, like, no one is transparent. We get some makeup for some gore effects, um, some pallidness for the three ghosts that we see who are hanged. They're all very effective. I am really impressed by the gore on the one ghost who, um, is missing the back of their skull. Yeah, that's a really good effect. It's also really effective to us because we just see this guy, we see this guy who we, you know, can figure out as a ghost talking to Cole and then he turns around and there's like a chunk of his skull missing and that's a really good reveal. It's shocking and surprising and fun. Mm-hmm. That's something you really talked about with uh, The Sixth Sense. It's, I think, the first proper scary movie on this bracket. We've had some that are dealing with complicated or scary subject matter. I think this is the first one where I've been like, that was a jump scare. Ooh, this is a scene of suspense. Yeah, like the closest we've gotten before this is The Exorcist. But I think The Sixth Sense definitely traverses the territory that The Exorcist was going for a lot better than The Exorcist does now. Yeah. Um, it also, I think, it uses its ghosts better than Wolf uses its werewolves because the ghosts feel very ephemeral and out of this worldy, mm-hmm. whereas the werewolves either feel like animatronics or guys who left their razors at home having a slap fight. I very rarely feel the, the magic of these creatures in the way I do with um, the ghosts. It seems like they exist in a world that is just a half a second out of sync with ours or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when the werewolf effects for, you know, this big budget Hollywood film don't even compare well to something like Teen Wolf. Not, not, not the show Teen Wolf, like the movie Teen Wolf. Yep. It's unfortunate. Um, so I think as you may have guessed, uh, The Sixth Sense is going to win both Monster Movie Magic and overall. Yes. Um, it's really unfortunate. I was I was hoping to be surprised by Wolf. Like, oh, no one remembers this. Maybe it's this, you know, forgotten classic. Like Dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Forgotten Classic is not what I would call Dinosaur. It's a good movie. I enjoy it. But uh, Classic, maybe not. The Sixth Sense is phenomenal. If you have not seen it or have not seen it in a while, highly recommend checking it out. Just be aware of those content warnings. Mm-hmm. Steal yourself. Yeah. What do we have coming up next week? Next week, we have a much more chill double feature. We've got the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the Witches of Eastwick. I don't think chill is necessarily the right word. <laughs> 
a much more fun week. The movies don't have the emotional torque that I say that The Sixth Sense does. Yeah, I would definitely describe those as wacky. <laughs> Rocky Horror is not your kind of musical, so I'm intrigued to see how that goes. Yeah, I I will admit right here, right now, that I have never seen Rocky Horror. In fact, there is a local shadow cast that Jackson was like, hey, do you want to go see this? I'm like... I've never seen Rocky Horror. It's probably best for me to like watch it at home so I can easily take notes. We'll see how that all goes. When Michelle Pfeiffer returns in The Witches of Eastwick. Oh, wow. Wow, they're like entwined in the fates. Yeah, there's only five years of... Uh, there's only a few years difference between the release of Witches of Eastwick and Wolf. There's only one week uh, difference between the release of this episode and that episode. So if you want to make sure to catch it, follow us on Facebook, Podbean, Twitter, Spotify. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.